0: to listen to a sermon
1: from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out his freedom. Uh, The first Bible reading for tonight comes from 2 Kings, chapter 1. After Ahab's death, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Azaziah had fallen through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and injured himself. So he sent messengers, saying to them, Go and consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, to see if I will recover from this injury. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, is it because there is no king in Israel that you are going off to consult Baal Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, this is what the Lord says, you will not leave the bed you are lying on, you will certainly die. So Elijah went. When the messengers returned to the king, he asked them, why have you come back? A man came to meet us, they replied, and he said to us, go back to the king who sent you and tell him, this is what the Lord says. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending messengers to consult Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, you will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. The king asked them, What kind of man was it who came to meet you and told you this? They replied, He had a garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist. The king said, That was Elijah the Tishbite. Then he sent to Elijah a captain with his company of 50 men. The captain went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, Man of God, the king says, come down. Elijah answered the captain, If I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and his men. At this, the king sent to Elijah another captain with his 50 men. The captain said to him, man of God, this is what the king says, come down at once. If I am a man of God, Elijah replied, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then the fire of God fell from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. So the king sent a third captain with his 50 men. This third captain went up and fell on his knees before Elijah. Man of God, he begged. "'Please have respect for my life and the lives of these 50 men, your servants. "'See, fire has fallen from heaven and consumed the first two captains and all their men. "'But now have respect for my life.' "'The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, "'Go down with him, do not be afraid of him.' "'So Elijah got up and went down with him to the king. "'He told the king, "'This is what the Lord says.' Is it because there is no God in Israel for you to consult that you have sent messengers to consult Baal-zebub, the God of Ekron? Because you have done this, you will never leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Because Azaziah had no son, Joram succeeded him as king in the second year of Joram, son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. As for the other events of Ahaziah's reign and what he did, are they not written in the book of the Annals of the Kings of Israel?
0: Well, good evening. My name is Roger. I'm one of the ministers here. It's great to be with you this evening and to be looking at that passage from uh, 2 Kings chapter 1. So you might like to have that open as we follow that through. Let me pray as we come to God's word. Father God, you're a good and gracious God and we thank you for the way that you uh, choose to Come to us and reveal yourself to us and to help us understand who you are and what you call us to. And so, Father, tonight we ask that you would speak to our hearts, that we might be transformed, that we might follow you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the Greeks and the Romans, the real struggle was between your mind and your passions. If you wanted to achieve something, you need to somehow sublimate, somehow uh, put down your emotions and subject them to the ideas of reason. We live in a culture that actually works quite differently to that. I don't know whether you've noticed this. Um, Our great struggle in our culture is the reverse. We think our feelings, our deepest feelings, are who we really are, and to repress or deny them is wrong, and that's where the struggle is. The great human struggle is between emotions and a repressive society or a repressive institution. Now, we kind of live at the epicentre of that in Sydney, I think. Uh, Just this week, you might have uh, heard about the murals in Newtown. Uh, Some of you will be familiar about the murals in Newtown, Uh, One of them had Tony Abbott and George Pell in a fairly compromising position. Um, And those murals have been plastered over. The outcry on social media was that people were trying to repress people's freedom of speech and expression. And how dare people come and do that? Uh, What was so interesting to actually observe is after the media got going, it then became a Christian thing. Now, there may well have been people identified um, as Christians involved, but it became very much then the church. The church is trying to repress us and stop us, and there's that institution that we need to struggle against. It's a really interesting depiction of how we're thinking and what is actually going on. The Bible, however, teaches us that neither of these things are the focus of our struggle. There might be something in them, but actually neither of these things are the focus of our struggle. The struggle actually happens within the human heart. And the main struggle is not against something else, but I guess in terms of our heart, the forces that tear our heart in different directions. The great battle we have is deciding on what our heart will love, what our hope, our heart will love, will hope in, will trust, how it will be directed. See, the Bible talks about us as being created as people who worship. Our hearts don't drift aimlessly. They always latch on to something. We always choose to worship something whether it be a person or a thing or an idea, and our worship of that thing, person or idea dictates how we live our lives. Uh, it's not surprising then when you see the Ten Commandments. You might take a uh, look one day, That's printed up there. The first commandment is about this. We read, "'I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, "'out of slavery,' and you will have no other gods before me. The flip side of that is the second commandment. You shall not make yourself an image of in any form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down and worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Do you see what's happening there? God is saying, I am the only God to be worshipped. That is where your heart should be directed. And your heart is not to be directed to idols. Now, frequently when we think of idols, particularly in the Old Testament, we're thinking of things that are made of stone and wood. But as the Bible unfolds, it becomes clear that idols can actually be other things other things that capture our hearts and minds and our affections more than God, things that we worship more than God. Now, these things can be good things. They can be positive things. They can be nice things, but we take them too far. So, for example, we can worship tolerance and we make tolerance our God. We can worship worship wealth, the gaining of money and goods and houses. We can worship safety. We can worship comfort. We can worship families. We can even worship love. And all of those things can replace God. They direct our hearts in different different directions. Well, as Matt mentioned, we've been going through this series through 1 and 2 Kings and we've been looking at the life of Elijah. And... The books of 1 and 2 Kings have described a major reversal in the people of Israel's life. They have slidden from this great nation focused on God to a nation now that is focused on idols. At the beginning of 2 Kings chapter 1, we see that writ large. Come with me to 2 Kings chapter uh, 1 and verse 1. After Ahab's death, now if you were here last week, we spoke about Ahab and Jezebel. Um, He was the king uh, who was rebelling against God. After Ahab's death, Moab rebelled against Israel. Uh, The significance of that is that the people of Israel um, subdued the people of Moab. And what was happening is they were no longer doing that. Basically, Israel was losing its power and breaking up was just another sign that things were falling apart. Now, Ahab's son is Ahaziah. And it turns out that he's fallen through the lattice in his upper room in Samaria and injured himself. Now, it could also be that he's fallen down the staircase or something like that. But whatever the case is, he's found himself in bed um, completely injured. Now, we know a little bit about Ahaziah. He's Ahab's and Jezebel's son, and he only reigns for two years. And in fact, he doesn't have any children himself. The line does not continue after him. And that was predicted in 1 Kings. That was predicted that that would happen as a result of the evil evil that they'd done in the sight of the Lord. Raised by Ahab and Jezebel. He's fallen through the lattice. He's in bed, ill, obviously in need of help. What's his first instinct after he's fallen through the lattice? That tells us something. Because when you're in pain, when you're in crisis, when you're hurt, when you need help, where you turn to first gives you an indication of what's going on in your heart. Now, we can turn to all kinds of things, but it's very clear from this passage that Ahaziah's heart is directed towards a god, the god of Ekron, called Zebub. Now, in the Hebrew, this kind of is a bit funny, actually, because it's Israel, the Israelites' way of making fun of other gods And what this actually means literally is the Lord of the Flies. So he wants to inquire of the Lord of the Flies to see as to whether he's going to recover from this injury. So what's his heart done? Well, it becomes very clear it's not going to Yahweh. It's not worshipping the one true God. He's going to worship Beelzebub. Now, this is a very, very significant moment in the life of Israel. They have come so far away from where they started. At the beginning of 1 Kings, we see the the great King David. The one whose heart had followed the Lord. Yes, there had been mistakes along the way, but he loved the Lord. A great, great king. He hands on to his son Solomon... And Solomon too has been a great king of wisdom, but there have been some problems along the way. And now, just over a hundred years later, the thought of consulting God has not even entered King Haziah's head. How does this happen? Well, the truth is no one wakes up one day and says, I'm not going to worship God today. I'm now going to start worshipping another idol. (laughs) Uh, This has been a long process. This has taken time. The trajectory has just unfolded over years as people's hearts have been directed towards other things other than God. No one wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to start worshipping love or I'm start going to worship the idea of climbing up the company ladder or I'm going to worship having the perfect family or owning a house or tolerance or love. Notice these things just happen over time and often slowly. From the time of King David to the King Hazai there's been this drift. Now even last week Ahab, his father, had kind of had some sense of who God was. Remember, he sort of sought the idea of repentance. He recognised God and he went to him and tore his clothes and dressed in sackcloth. He kind of knew God was important to worship, but his son was not going to do that. His son had grown up in an environment where his first duty wasn't to worship God. God wasn't the first thing his heart followed. Now, can I say, I've seen this many, many times. I've seen this happen in many Christians' lives as they've uh, continued on uh, trying to follow God, but then actually just drifting as time goes by. Uh, one of the interesting places, that, well, one of the sad places you see this often develop actually is in families. Uh, Christian family coming to church, they get involved. Kids get involved. And then it's gradually over time, There are some good things that come along. You know, it might be soccer or it might be parties or it might be other things that start to come along. And gradually, and I know it's complicated. I've had kids. I know what it's like. Gradually, there's this drift. And Sundays and meeting with God's people start to seem less important and less significant and that starts to happen less and... <laughs> And then sometimes parents come to me and say, I can't believe it. We went to church and my 16-year-old is no longer interested in going to church. And so as we gently talk that conversation through, sometimes what becomes evident is actually that drift has been happening for a long, long time. Uh, Someone once said to me, uh, the best way to think about this is when you have small kids add 10 years and ask yourself the question, if you continue on the trajectory you're on, where will you be in 10 years? Now that's what happens in Christian families, but I actually reckon it happens for us as well. Um, Just the small things, just the small adjustments and shifts to our lives that mean that we start to move away from worshipping God. And it's not so much what we talk about, actually, sometimes. It's, it's the way we live, the things that we get excited about. Uh, it's the air that we breathe. It's the things that we allow for that start to eat away at our hearts and start to direct our hearts into different directions. And so it, it's important that we actually spend time cultivating our worship of God, cultivating our hearts so that our hearts are directed towards the worship of God, because these things can just happen. So I want to encourage you, cultivate your heart, because these things can just happen over a period of time. Make sure that you're walking close to God, directing your heart to worship Him as the one and only God. What's so interesting about this passage is though. As as Haziah turns away from God, God comes after him. If you're turning away from God, God's going to come after you. He's not going to leave you alone. It's for your own good. Your life is better, delighting in God. But actually, it's mainly for his glory. And he's going to come after you. And that's exactly what we see unfolding as this passage develops. God instructs Elijah, his mouthpiece, to confront the king. And he instructs him to confront the king and make clear that the Lord God reigns. And so that's exactly what he does and he communicates in verse 4, there, Therefore, this is what the Lord says, You shall not leave your bed and your you're lying on, you will certainly die. Well, the messengers go back to King Haziah, they report the message of Elijah. And what does he do? Where does his heart lie? Well, at least in his father's case, his father went, oh, oh yes, I'm under God's judgment. I better do something about this. But no, King Haziah starts to go in the opposite direction. Rather than repenting, he ups the ante. He sends a squad of 50 men with a captain to detain Elijah. He thinks he can control and intimidate Elijah, God's servant, And he thinks he does it like his mother did. His mother actually uh, chased away Elijah at one stage. But Elijah refuses to run, and he sits there. And instead, what does he do? He calls fire down from heaven, and 50 men die. Now, I don't know about you, that makes me feel pretty uncomfortable, (laughs) the idea that Elijah's there and all of a sudden... (laughs) these guys die because of the fire of God and I guess it's important to note uh, actually we are uncomfortable often with God's judgment and I haven't got time to address it here this evening but I guess some things to keep thinking about in this regard is that if God is just and true and righteous and holy and he makes the right decisions then we can trust that his judgments will be right as well Sometimes that's hard to do, but actually he knows what he's doing. He's in charge of the universe. He knows how things unfold. He knows people's hearts. And so at times I think it's actually just a matter of saying, hey, I'm going to trust God on this one. I don't get it all, but I'm going to trust him. On the other hand, sometimes I think our uncomfort- the fact that we're uncomfortable with God's judgment is because... We just don't realise how serious an offence it is to God that we don't worship him with all our hearts. That is it completely offensive to God that we would worship other gods. That we would worship other idols. And that God holds us to account for the way that we behave and what we do and what we say. You heard that in that second reading, didn't you? God holds us to account for the way we behave and for the way we live. And sometimes I think we're scared of looking at the judgment of God because we actually realize that maybe we are under that judgment ourselves. We don't really want to know about it. Well, as the story continues and unfolds, the second captain comes along And it's interesting, the captain ups the ante. (laughs) Fifty guys have just died. The king knows what's going on. And listen to what he does in verse 11. He says to Elijah, come down at once. Not just come down, come down at once. Another 50 guys disappear. A hundred people have died. The third captain comes along and he takes a fairly pragmatic approach. As he turns up, he pleads with Elijah. He says, man of God, verse 13, please have respect for my life and the lives of these 50 men, your servants. There's kind of a glimmer here that he might be recognizing what Elijah is saying. Recognizing who Elijah worships. And so these men are spared. And they take Elijah back to the king. Well, this is one last time. God is pursuing King Ahaziah. Pursuing him to the end. Giving him every opportunity. At every point, he said to him, you can change. This is the judgment. Repentance is needed. And each time the king has refused. And so Elijah delivers the same message again. But the king doesn't repent. His heart is set on another God, he is worshipping another idol. He hasn't turned to the living God. And he dies just as predicted, he dies in his bed. It's a pretty sad story, really. God pursuing someone, pursuing, pursuing, and the person just not responding. Well, how do we deal with that ourselves? Because we know our own hearts and we know we get distracted and we know that we're not dissimilar, actually, that sometimes our hearts harden and we start following other things, worshipping at other idols. And we know that our hearts go astray and, and actually this story is not that far from who we are. How do we deal with God's all consuming fire? How do we deal with the fact that our hearts choose to follow other gods? I was thinking through the week and thinking about God's all-consuming fire and I was reminded of an incident in Daniel in the third chapter. You might remember there's three faithful men who are thrown into a furnace that's supposed to kill them. But a fourth mysterious figure appears beside them and he's called the son of the gods and as they walk through this furnace this fire they're not consumed now from the vantage point of the new testament christians know that this was the son of god himself the son who god who faced an infinitely greater furnace of affliction centuries later when he went to the cross Jesus on the cross plunged himself into the fire of God's wrath so that he can be with us and so that we can turn to him knowing that he has consumed the punishment that we deserve. It's only on the cross that we start to understand how God deals with our failure to worship him as the one true God. We've turned away from him and God in judgment turned away from his own son on the cross and Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now we can't imagine the pain, the mental anguish as the son experienced the furnace of the father. But he went through those flames in order that we might be restored, in order that we might be people who worship him as the one and only God. That's how far God is prepared to pursue us. That's how much he loves us. And he wants us to worship him as the one and only God. And the extent to which our hearts grasp this beautiful vision of what God has done for us in Christ, in his death and resurrection, to the extent we understand that and understand what that furnace was like, is the extent to which we start turning from our idols and start worshipping the one true God, In all his glory and majesty and beauty and wonder. And our hearts are captivated by his love, by what he's done for us. And that reorientates our lives and starts us to focus on the things that are important to him. And our lives become lives of worship to him not worship to other things that will fail and be destroyed and will rust and will be discarded and will come under God's judgment, but things that are beautiful because they are God's. Where's your heart? Is it captured by the love of God and what he's done for us? down through the centuries as we finish, there's been many people who've been captured by this beauty. One of the first women who wrote poetry in the Reformation was a woman called Marguerite. She was the sister of the King of France and she came to understand and be transformed by the love of God. And if you've been part of our devotional series recently and receiving that by email, you will have seen her poem this morning. I just want to read it to you as an example of what it means to have your heart captured. This is the poem she's written O you, my priest, my advocate, my king, on whom depends my life, my everything. O Lord who first did drain the bitter cup of woe, and knows its poison if man e'er did know. Those thorns how sharp, those wounds how deep. Saviour, friend, king, O plead my cause, I pray. Speak, help, and save me, lest I fall away. Let me pray. Father God, we need you. It does us no good to inquire of foreign gods or idols. We need your spiritual wisdom, a wisdom that only can come for you. For you are the one God who rules heaven and earth who rules over life and death. You've created all things and you sustain everything by your word and through your power. You are an all-consuming fire and we must worship you and you alone. Please have mercy on us that we might live. Give us hope in this day of trouble. Forgive us our sins. Draw us near to you in Christ and turn us away from all the idols of our hearts. In Jesus' name.